Back in the mid-1800s, there was a young pastor in Philadelphia whose name was Phillips Brooks. He was a large, imposing man. He was nearly six feet, six inches tall. He was nearly 300 pounds, and he was also a very powerful and eloquent speaker. And when Phillips Brooks was about 30 years old, he had the opportunity to travel to Israel in order to visit uh, the places that were very significant in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the crowning moment for this young pastor when he was in Israel was Christmas Eve. Now, as a pastor, I, I kind of wonder what in the world is he doing traveling away from his church on Christmas Eve? Because typically, that Christmas time is the most busy and the most important time, or one of the most important times of the year for a pastor and for a church. So I'm not really sure why he was traveling over there then, but he was. And so he was there on Christmas Eve in a church in Bethlehem called the Church of the Nativity. It was one of the oldest churches in Christian history. And traditionally, it's, it's placed very close to where they think the baby Jesus was born. And Phillips Brooks was at this Christmas Eve service at this church, and this Christmas Eve service was five hours long. Now, for us in America, we probably can't imagine what it would be like to be in a five-hour-long church service, even on Christmas Eve, or maybe especially on Christmas Eve, when we have a lot of other things planned. But it was a five-hour church service, and for him, is one of the most powerful moments of his life. A few years later, he recalled what, what it was like, and he said, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with splendid hymns of praise to God. And when I think about what that must have been like, it kind of gives me chills to think about singing those songs, maybe even just a few feet from that spot where Jesus was born many years before. Uh, back when I was in seminary, Shelley and I had the opportunity to travel to Greece and to Turkey to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we went to places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Ephesus and Corinth. And it was just amazing to be in places to be reading the Bible and think, wow, Paul was standing right here. or He was right in this amphitheater or this was where he was in prison. To be in those places where the Bible is written. But I think for Phillips Brooks, how much more powerful would that be? Not only to be in such a sacred place, but to be there at that time on Christmas Eve recalling the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was in 1865 that Phillips Brooks had that powerful experience in Israel and specifically in Bethlehem. Fast forward a couple years to 1867. Phillips Brooks was still pastoring in Philadelphia. And the uh, Christmas season was approaching. And, and on Christmas Day the children in this church are going to be giving a special program. And he wanted an original Christmas song for those children to be able to sing. And so he put down some words on paper, and the inspiration for these words was that special Christmas Eve service there in Bethlehem. And the song that he wrote is the one that we know today as O Little Town of Bethlehem. And that's the song that we're going to be talking about in our time together this morning. So I invite you, if you'd like to follow along, uh, to grab a hymnal. You can turn to page 250 in the hymnal for A Little Town of Bethlehem. And in your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. We are in a series right now called Carols. And this is a series that really focuses in on some of the main Christmas songs that we sing during Christmas. These are songs that are probably very familiar to, to any of us who've grown up in America or listening to any Christmas music. They're familiar to us, but we're looking at them through this series to try to gain a fresh perspective on the significance of Christ's birth, even in our lives here in the 21st century. 
So as we dig into a little town of Bethlehem and into the Christmas story in Scripture, will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for you sending your son to this world 2,000 years ago. And, and now as we come to this, this song that sings of the birth of Christ, we pray that you open our eyes in fresh ways to the significance, not only back then, but the significance of Christ's birth to our lives today. We thank you that you are willing to send your son to this world. May we leave this time together this morning with a fresh sense of gratitude and awe and even commitment to you as a result of what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today as we dig into this, uh, to this hymn, we're going to look at three different aspects of the, um, Christ's arrival into this world that will shine fresh light onto the significance of what's known as the Incarnation. The Incarnation is a fancy theological word which simply means God coming to earth, taking on human flesh uh, in the form of a little child. As I said, we're going to be looking at three different aspects of Christ's arrival in this world. And the first aspect that we're going to see is how, how Christ's arrival was a very surprising arrival. It, it was incredibly surprising. And I think when you look in the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, you see this unexpectedness of Christ's arrival woven throughout the song. Let me read the first stanza of this song, which talks about kind of the unexpectedness or surprising nature of Christ's arrival. Begins, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet, in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But you hear it's talking about Bethlehem and how it's nighttime and how, you know, the stars are up in the sky. People are asleep. But while people are asleep at night, there is something amazing taking place there. The everlasting light. Jesus Christ is coming into the world. In the third stanza, it starts out by saying, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. I think this is an amazing thing to think about, that there in Bethlehem, there are a lot of people there, but they had very little awareness of what God was doing right there in their midst. A king was being born. But there was very little fanfare for the arrival of Jesus. And earlier you heard Pastor David talk about what it would be like if the president came to visit us here in Port Washington. There would be a great uh, degree of fanfare and extravaganza. They would close down the airport when he came in. They would close down the roads that he was driving on. There would probably be a motorcade. He'd be riding in a limo, but there would be police cars and all kinds of other cars all around him. You'd have the Secret Service who'd come in well before him and and be there making sure that he is safe. Wherever he comes to speak, uh, people would be asked to rise and to clap and to greet him. There'd be a lot of fanfare over the arrival of a president. And even in Jesus' day, whenever a king would come into town, there would again be a lot of fanfare. You'd have someone who'd be running before the king saying, make way for the king. He'd clear out the road for the king. The king would probably be riding on a, uh, on a, a majestic horse or in a chariot. There would be other horses or chariots around him. He'd be wearing his royal robes. He'd be wearing a big golden crown. People would be standing in awe as the king went by. That's how people greeted the king. But here, in the form of the baby Jesus, you have the king of kings and the lord of lords stepping off his heavenly throne and coming to earth. And practically no one noticed then how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. I want to turn us now to Luke chapter 2 
to see the biblical account of how the baby Jesus came into this world. So I invite you, to, if you haven't already, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Luke begins in verse 1 by saying, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I think this, this passage points to things that are very important for us to remember in that time of the birth of Christ. Normally, Bethlehem was a very small, quaint, uh, very quiet town. It was basically a suburb of Jerusalem, just a few miles outside. At best, a stopping point as people were journeying into Jerusalem. They may stop there just for a little resting period, perhaps overnight. But it was just a small, quiet town. But in this moment, when Jesus was born into the world, Bethlehem was, was bustling with crowds of people because there was this census that had been decreed by the, by the leader of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. He decreed that there was a census and that everyone needed to return to the town of their ancestry. So Bethlehem was crowded with many, many people at that moment. I think that one of the better ways to picture this is to think of Port Washington on fish day. Normally, Port Washington is, is relatively quiet. I mean, a, a fairly peaceful little town. But on fish day, it's anything but. As, as tens of thousands of people swarm in here. I mean, there are people every, everywhere. There are pe- things you wouldn't see any other day except this particular day. I mean, it's a crazy day around Port Washington. A, a stark contrast to the normal quietness and peacefulness of the rest of the year. I think that's a picture of what Bethlehem would have been like during that time. That, that, that it went from being a quiet, relatively peaceful town to a place where there was absolutely no room for anyone else to stay. All the rooms in the inns were full. All the, anyone who had room in their house, that was full. He was very crowded, very busy. But that was the setting into which Jesus was born. And in that setting, no one noticed that the creator of the universe had stepped off his heavenly throne and come into this world as a little baby. But just because no one recognized what was taking place right there under their noses, it doesn't mean that this was all haphazard and unplanned. Because in fact, what was taking place there, even though uh, very few people noticed what was taking place, God was orchestrating a plan that he had put in place so many years before. Because we need to understand that not only was this uh, a surprising arrival, it was a well-planned arrival. Oftentimes when we think of the biggest surprises in life, we have to recognize that there is a lot of planning that goes into those things. Back uh, in early 2011, I I received a phone call at church from from a woman who lived nearby. I I knew her somewhat uh, from previous experience, but she was calling and she was friends with Eric and Kimberly McKinney. And Eric and Kimberly were in the adoption process of, of little Sarah. And they had just reached a significant point in the process where they knew the end of the adoption process was very near. And these friends of Eric and Kimberly wanted to throw a surprise party for, for Kimberly and Eric. And so they wanted to talk with me to help coordinate this. They wanted to hold it here in church. 
And, and we knew there were a lot of details that had to be planned. For instance, you had to figure out, okay, what are we going to eat there? What activities are going to take place? How in the world are you going to invite 80 or 100 people to this thing? Friends, family members from around the country? How are you going to invite all those people without Eric and Kimberly finding out about this? And this was particularly difficult because Eric, if you know him, he prides himself on never being surprised by anything. Now, one of the harder things, I, I think it was the hardest part of the whole plan, was where I came in. And that's, how do you get this whole family to the church at the same time on a Saturday afternoon? Now, it's one thing to try to get one family member there. Uh, you could make up some lie and say, hey, we have a meeting. Can you come to the meeting? It's another thing to get a mom, a dad, and two kids, actually three kids with Sarah there at the exact same time in the middle of a Saturday afternoon when normally there's nothing going on at church. So we devised this, devised this really intricate plan where some friends who live nearby, very close to church, were going to invite them to a meal in the middle of the afternoon. And then the, my part of the plan was to call them at a strategic time very soon before they'd be leaving for that meal and ask Eric to come to church and help move the piano up onto the stage. I mean, we had done that a couple times before for special services. And Eric's a nice, big, strong guy. So, so had it all worked out where he's going to help, come help move the piano up onto the stage. And my hope was that they would come as they were going to this meal and the whole family would come in and it worked. Eric and Kimberly and the kids and also I think it was Eric's parents all came in at the same time. Eric and Kimberly and the kids had no idea what was going on. They all walked through, or walked through the lobby. I was walking them through Fellowship Hall and all of a sudden 60, 80 people jumped out and said, surprise! And it really did surprise them. I mean, it was a great surprise. It was a great celebration. But there was a lot of planning that went into it. It couldn't have been pulled off in that way if not for all the planning that had happened for several weeks and even a couple months before that. A lot of thought went into it. It was a surprise, but it was a well-planned surprise. And the birth of Jesus was very, very similar to that where it was a surprise to all the people around there except for just a small handful such as Mary and Joseph. But God had been planning for the birth of Jesus since eternity passed. And he'd been dropping hints through the prophets down through the centuries about details for the coming of Christ. One of the hints that he dropped was through the prophet Micah, over 700 years before Jesus was born. I want to turn us back to Micah chapter 5. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. It's going to be up on the screen. We're just going to spend a couple minutes there. But in Micah 5, we see one of the hints that, that God dropped in about 720 B.C. about the coming Messiah. Matthew or Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So we see this is a prophecy about a coming ruler, the coming Messiah. And it says that this Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, you may think, okay, I've heard of Bethlehem. But what in the world is this big word Ephrathah? Well, Ephrathah, all it is, is an older name for the town of Bethlehem. It came from, from many centuries earlier. And, and so really what it is is just a way of identifying this particular Bethlehem. Because there are a couple different Bethlehems or towns by the name of Bethlehem in the nation of Israel at that time. And so it's kind of like identifying Port Washington, Wisconsin, in order to differentiate this town from, say, Port Washington, New York. And so God is inspiring the prophet Micah to clarify 
that the Messiah will come from specifically Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that town that's just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And God is basically saying, Bethlehem, you're a small town, but you're significant. Because born in you will come, or will come a baby child who will be a ruler. And this isn't just any ruler, it's not just any king. It's a ruler whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is talking about um, someone who, who has been around for a long time. And typically, when you have a baby who's born, that baby was not around forever. That baby just came into existence just a few months before he or she was born. But this ruler who's going to be born in Bethlehem has been around since ancient times, from eternity past. The Son of God stepping off his throne and coming into the world. <clears throat> so the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. And this is a prophecy that took place over 700 years before it was fulfilled. But if you know your history and, and know where Mary and Joseph lived when, when Mary became pregnant with Jesus, you know there's a little bit of a, what appeared to be a bit of a hiccup in the plans. Because Mary and Joseph were not in Bethlehem. That wasn't where they lived. And so it may be tempting to wonder, okay, God, did you make a mistake? Did you choose the wrong woman to bear the Messiah? No. God, do you have them living in the wrong location? Maybe you forgot that you gave that prophecy 700 years ago. You know, we're all forgetful at times. We forget things we say. But God, maybe you forgot that you said through the prophet Micah in 720 B.C. that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. But God did not forget. He was putting this well-orchestrated plan in place. And he was weaving everything together. And, you know, I could go into a lot of detail about why that particular time, I think, was the opportune time in world history for God to send the Messiah. But let me just point out one thing that comes from Luke chapter 2 that points to how God was in complete control of putting his plan in place. Remember that census that required all the people to go back to their land of their ancestry? That was not just a coincidence. I seriously doubt that Caesar Augustus, I don't just doubt it, I know that he had no idea this prophecy that he was helping to fulfill. But that shows God's plan being worked out. That God prepared Caesar Augustus to decree a census that would lead Mary and Joseph back to Jerusalem, the land of their ancestry, so that Micah chapter 5 verse 2 could be fulfilled. The Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. This was a surprising plan to a lot of the people there. But it was a well-orchestrated, well-planned plan that God was putting into place. And now think about what it would be like for a very pregnant woman to travel by donkey about 80 miles from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. Now, I've never been pregnant. Um, and my wife hasn't been pregnant. I'm sure you're happy to hear I've never been pregnant. <laughs> but I know from being around enough pregnant women that probably traveling 80 miles on a donkey when you're in your third trimester would not be that pleasant, would it? I mean, I hear stories of the drama that can take place in driving your car 10 miles on a highway to the hospital when you're in labor. Imagine when you're probably in your eighth or even your ninth month of pregnancy traveling 80 miles on the back of a donkey over many days to go to fulfill the call of the Roman emperor for the census. But that's what God had orchestrated. And that's the plan that he chose to bring his Messiah into the world. 
Now I want to take us back for a minute to, uh, to the song. We see that this is a well-orchestrated plan, that it's uh, a surprising plan, but also it's a very personal plan. It's a personal plan, a personal arrival in the sense that, that this arrival of Jesus has significance, not just objectively in the past, saying, well, the birth of Jesus was some fact that took place back then, and we're able to look at it and reminisce about it now. It's not just some objective historical fact, even though it is that, but it's more than that. The birth of Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah, is meant to be, have, have personal significance in our lives today. And it's interesting, as we look in the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, to see how Phillips Brooks wove, wove that personal arrival of Christ into the song. There's a really interesting shift that takes place between the second and the third verse of the song. The first two verses or stanzas talk about objectively the reality of Christ coming into this world. You know, it talks about um, the little town of Bethlehem and how he came and how no one noticed. But then there's a shift in the third and fourth verses, to focus more subjectively on how the birth of Christ relates to us, even today. I want to read the second half um, of, of stanza three. It says, No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So it's talking there about how Christ has personal relevance to our lives today. This reminds me when it talks about um, with meek souls or where meek souls will receive him still and the dear Christ enters in. It reminds me of a passage out of Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Talks about how Jesus wants to come and be a very significant, intimate part of our lives. He's knocking at the door and he's saying, If you will let me in, I will come in and be with you. I will enter. It's the same thing that Phillips Brooks writes about at the end of verse 3. Where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Now moving on to verse 4, we see even more of that contemporary uh, personal relevance to our lives. It says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Now we'll go on to the second half of the stanza in just a moment. But I want to point out a couple things in here. Notice it says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. This is an invitation praying, Jesus, come, please be a part of our lives. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. This idea of casting out our sin is saying, you know, I'm not going to live in my own self-centered, rebellious way against God anymore. Jesus, I want you to get rid of the sin in my life. I think part of this points to Jesus' death on the cross, that he died in order to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins, to, to free us, to give us forgiveness so that our sin couldn't be counted against us any longer. But it's also talking about holiness, that in the way that we live our lives, that we will be living in a way that gets rid of sin more and more and more and allows Christ, in increasing ways, to take up residence in our hearts as our Lord. Now I want to move to the last two lines of this song which I think may be the most powerful of all in terms of this, this message, both objectively and subjectively in a little town of Bethlehem. The next to the last line says, We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. 
Now, you hear that, and it's talking objectively about this is the thing we usually celebrate at Christmas. When we're thinking about the birth of Christ and how there's so much celebration, we talk about the angels appearing, the shepherds in the fields, and we're, we're all excited and get warm and fuzzy feelings as we get sentimental about all that Christmas uh, meant then and what we think it means to us when we think about the traditions and the Christmas carols and the good food and the nice, uh, nice happy church services. That's what that part's talking about. But then there's this, this shift again to personalize it in our lives. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us, O Lord Emmanuel. You hear what that's saying? It's, it's an invitation. Jesus, come live with us, live in us. Be our Lord. The idea of Jesus being Lord is very significant. It's basically saying, Jesus, I want you to control where I'm going in life. I no longer am going to sit in the driver's seat of my life. I'm going to surrender that driver's seat to you, and I'm no longer going to be a backseat driver either. I want you to come and take control of everything I am, everything I do. That's what it means when it says, Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Master, Emmanuel. So we have a question. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord in our lives today? Because if we, if we shortcut before we get to this point, we lose sight of the ultimate reason why Jesus came. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord in our lives today? Well, you see this picture on the screen of a boardroom. Imagine your heart, which is your control center for your life, kind of your driver's seat for the, that determines where you're going in your life. Imagine that your, your heart is kind of like a boardroom where you have this big table, you have all these nice fancy leather chairs, you have the, the bottled water and the coffee on the table, you have a whiteboard on the wall, a nice boardroom. And sitting in the chairs around the boardroom in your heart are different aspects of yourself. For instance, you have your social self, which is highly influenced by your friends and by your family and what you think they would like you to do and, and what you'd like to do with them. You have your work self, which is all about the things that you do in your work and, and who you are there where you work. And it's about your, your career aspirations. You have your recreational self in another chair talking about what can I do in my life to have fun? What do I really enjoy doing and how can I get more of that? You have your religious self uh, that's, that's involved in the various church activities. You have your private self sitting in another chair, which is really about your, your internal thoughts and your motives that you don't let a lot of people see and you may not even think about it that much, but that's still a very significant driving force in your life. And you may have a few other selves sitting around that table as well. And if you picture it this way, you have all these different desires inside of you that are pulling you in different directions. And what oftentimes happens there is that you don't really live life wholeheartedly. Uh, you, you're, you're divided. There's, there's a lot of give and take on that boardroom, and, and different people are giving different opinions, and various times you follow uh, the advice of various selves there around that table. Now imagine with me what it would be like to have Jesus come into this person's life. What would it be like? I think you have a couple different options. On the one hand, a person could just invite Jesus in to have another seat at the table in that boardroom. So you have all these other selves, the work self, the, the recreational self, the, the personal or the private self, stuff like that. And then you have Jesus sitting there as well. And so he gets to have a voice and a vote there at the board meeting. But oftentimes what would happen in that case is that Jesus' voice would be drowned out by all these other desires from the others at the table. 
That's one way that people try to invite Jesus into their lives, just as one of many voices calling for their attention. But there's another way that's the biblical way, and it's the way that's communicated in this last line of O Come, or O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's the idea that Jesus comes in as Lord. And that as Lord, you're saying, Jesus, I want you to run my life. I no longer want this committee running my life of all these different voices. I want you to come in. You can fire all those other committee members, and you are in the driver's seat now. I want you to take control of my life. I want you to be the one determining how I live and where I go. That's what it really means to live with Jesus as Lord. Now, I want to ask you a question. I think it's, it's a convicting question uh, when I really think about it, but it's an important question. What parts of my life besides church attendance would be different if Christ was not a part of my life? This question really strikes at the core of whether or not Jesus is truly our Lord, whether or not we're really following him as our master. What parts of my life would be different if Christ wasn't a part of my life? And like I said, I'm not including church attendance because someone can attend church without having without Christ really having any significant influence over their, over their lives besides that one hour on Sunday morning. So what difference would it make in your life if Christ wasn't a part of your life, if you've never heard of Christ? Would it change your, your character? Would your attitude be any different? Would the way that you relate to others be any different if you didn't have Christ in your life? Would your lifestyle be different? Would you spend money differently if Christ wasn't a part of your life? Because if Christ is really the Lord of our life, he will make a deep difference in, in all these aspects of how we live our life on a day-to-day basis. I think this is where a diagram that we use here at Freedness comes really in handy. As we call it the up-in-out triangle. This triangle really summarizes the three key relationships that all Christ followers have. You have your up relationship with God uh, that, that needs to be healthy. You have your in relationship, which talks about relationships with other Christians within the body of Christ. And then you have your out relationship with uh, the surrounding world in terms of how you relate to them, how you uh, have a redemptive impact in the name of Christ on the world around you. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is right there at the center. And, and this picture shows the importance of having healthy relationships in all those areas. And one of the resources that we have here at Freedens is a brochure on this up and out triangle that has a bunch of reflection questions in there based on, on those various characteristics of a Christ follower that can help us examine, is Christ really the Lord of our lives or not? If you'd like to obtain a copy of this brochure to reflect on, uh, there are copies out at the Welcome Center. But I want to challenge us with this idea that at Christmas, Christ came not just, just to give us warm, fuzzy feelings, and not just to give us nice songs, not just to give us nice traditions, but he came to be the Lord of our lives. Now, when we go back to Luke chapter 2, I think it's really interesting to observe that God had orchestrated so many details in the coming of Christ. I mean, even to the point of getting Caesar Augustus to decree a census to get Mary and Joseph all the way to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. But God, while he orchestrated all those things, for some reason, he did not find a place for Mary and Joseph to stay in the inn. And that makes me wonder, why couldn't God have done that as well? Why did, why did Jesus have to be born in a place where animals lived rather, rather than in a more comfortable place where people live? But I think this is indicative of, of the style of Jesus' ministry. 
that Jesus never owned a home. He was rejected by his people throughout his life. At the end, he was crucified as a common criminal. And he never fights his way into our lives either. He knocks at the door. He says, I want to come into your life. I want to be a part of your life. I want to be your Lord. But he won't barge his way in. He gives us the option of whether or not we're going to allow him to come in. So my prayer for us is that we will not be like the innkeeper who had to say, I'm sorry, Jesus, or, or not Jesus, but I'm sorry. There's no room for you here. It's far too easy to live our lives in that way too, saying, you know, I'm busy. I have a lot going on. There's no room for Jesus to really fit in, much less be Lord. My prayer is that we will have room for the Lord Jesus in our hearts, not only during this Christmas season, but beyond. This is the cry of Scripture. It's the cry of a little town of Bethlehem. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into this world as a light shining in darkness. We see darkness all around us, whether it's in the events of the previous week, whether it's in the challenges we face in our own lives. Um, But we thank you that you came to be a light. And I pray that you will grow in being our Lord in our lives, that we will increasingly submit ourselves to you wholeheartedly. And also that you will work through us to point others to your light as well. How you are the light of life, how you are the one, the only one who can lead us to true life. We thank you that you came, that we might have life and have it to the full. May we experience that life as we submit to you as our Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.